Welcome to Life, Love, and Hustle, the podcast that uncovers the story behind the stories of entrepreneurs, artists, and activists making an impact in their business, community, and the culture. Join us for these intimate conversations with ordinary people working to do extraordinary things and hear their journey through struggle, triumph, growth, and change. Now, here's your host, Chad Smith. What's up? It's your boy right back in the saddle for another episode of Life, Love, and Hustle. And today I'm joined by a brother who I've gotten to know through my love, Renee. Um, He is uh, the author of Niggas Ain't Astronauts, and he's also (laughs) the president of Comprehensive Discipline Solutions in Fort Washington, Maryland. He has been involved in education for the past uh, 27 years. We've had some great conversations offline, and I thought that it'd be a great thing to get him on the air, and let's talk to him, um, and he can spread his knowledge across the airwaves. So uh, welcome to the show, Robert Murphy. Thank you for having me, brother. Thank you for having me. I mean, don't thank me yet. I might cut you off in about 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, if you say something I don't like, it might cut you right off. It won't be the first time. It won't be the last time. <laughs> hey, listen, you are married. So, you know, so I get that, you know. Oh, hey, I'm talking about podcasts. I've, I've been on some where people are like, mm, we don't want you back. <laughs> oh, no way. Really? Yes, because I've said some things they, they didn't really care for. It wasn't the common uh, narrative. So. Oh, man. See, yeah. but... T.D. Jake said a long time ago, and I always remember this. He said, if you invite me on, I'm going to be me. Like, like if you invite me to dinner, I'm going to be me. If you invite me to talk, I'm going to talk how I want to talk. You know, like if I didn't chase you down for a spot, um, I don't owe you anything. (laughs) I agree with with uh, with Minister Jake's and Bishop Jake's. I don't. I mean, for me personally, this stuff is not personal. Whatever I say is really. I don't typically have an opinion that I haven't researched, mm-hmm. um, and that's read both sides of whatever argument. So it, I tend to just present information, and sometimes people like that, and sometimes people don't. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't uh, correlate or doesn't um, support people's perspectives, um, then sometimes people get offended or they, they don't want to hear it, and then that's when it goes left. <laughs> <laughs> or 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 right, you know, whatever. Yes. <laughs> whoever show you on it could go left, yeah, could go that right. That is very true. Very true. <laughs> well, man, well, it's good to talk to you. It's always good to talk to you. Uh, I can't say that there's many more people who I respect more than, than more than you. Um, I, I, I like your insights on things. We agree on some things and we disagree on some things. Absolutely. But uh but I definitely respect your intellect and I respect your views. And I, and I also respect the fact that you are uh, a database person and that uh, you're not just riding off your emotions or, or, or your, or, or your opinions. So now I want to talk about this book of yours because I pretty much gave you the idea for your next book, right? But <laughs> yes, uh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> the current book is called niggas ain't astronauts. I just like saying that title. <laughs> So, so, so give us the background on, uh, well, first yourself, right? So tell, okay. tell us about you. Who is Robert Murphy? So Robert Murphy is uh, obviously a man um, who was born in the city of Detroit. Uh, my hometown represents the D everywhere I go. Um, Detroit and my family 
my specifically my mother shaped a lot of my life. My mother actually was the one who made the statement, niggas ain't astronauts. So when I was six years old, uh, my uncle, who was big into space, used to take me to the, to the planetariums and we'd watch stars and he'd talk, tell me about the Big Dipper and all these things. So eventually I got to be six and I said, Ma, I want to be I want to be an astronaut. And she looked at me just as plain and said, Bobby, niggas ain't astronauts. And she just mm. walked away. <laughs> and, and I remember walked being like, what's that? Walked, walked it off. Yeah, just just did not. There was no like, well, maybe you could. It was just straight like, no, Bobby, niggas ain't astronauts. And just walked away. And I thought um, it's it was an appropriate title because ironically, my mother, um, my mother was born in 1939. And. I mean, this was 1976. She had not seen a black astronaut, did not know it was possible to have a black astronaut. Um, and so she was speaking from her experience. And a lot of this book is a reflection of my and her, her relationship, as well as kind of a lot of the things that I saw as a child, both good and bad. So what inspired you to write it? Uh, you know, it's not every day that uh, people get, you know, get, get an itch to write a book. It's a lot of work and uh, it's historically been pretty 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 tough to get published like what made you decide to write a book well so you know as an educator 28 years um you know you see materials come through that through the pike and i've seen you know the hottest book and you know typically from a publisher whatever and one of the things that i noticed was the consistent theme in the books that were presented was it was always to talk about the black kid who was a gangbanger, who was a criminal, who was a thug, who was this, who was that. And the vast majority of black kids aren't that. The vast majority of black kids are just regular kids who are trying to live their lives, but they experience certain things. So my book is at least, it is a testament to the average black kid who who is not a gangbanger, a thug or anything, mm. but all of the things that we have to experience for those of us who aren't those things um, and how we have to negotiate and navigate that world, even though we're not a part of that world. We just want to be kids and play football or basketball or, or run track or skip rope or whatever it is. So this story is a testament to that um, and to the experiences of kids who are just like me, whether it's the city of Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, you name it. We all have we all have had these experiences. So that's what the book was about. It was to tell a story of the average black child or the average so black male. Oh, okay, I got you. Growing up in Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. So, so how how did your experiences growing up in in Detroit? Because uh, I'm, I think we're the same age, right? Because I'm 48. We're we're about the same I'm age. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're pretty close. Yeah. And the, the 70s were different than than the, than how the kids growing up now, man. So how how did your experience growing up uh, a black a black male in, in, in Detroit in the seventies. Uh, how did that shape your perspective that you present in this book? Yeah. So, so I talk about a little bit in the book, like, you know, as a kid, like, I don't, excuse me, specifically, specific to Detroit and I probably the Midwest, maybe it happened out here, but I know like the economies of the Midwest were born around factories and mills and parts and all those things. I mean, Detroit is called the motor city. Yeah. Um, and I remember as a kid, like, when I in my neighborhood, like there were no white people around in my neighborhood. It was all black people and it was all black married couples. It was, you know, husband, wife, children, whatever. And I just remember um, I talk about it in the book, like around 1976, 1975, maybe 74, six auto, auto automakers became five, five became four, four became three. 
And what you saw was just this almost like an alien abduction of, of black people, black, specifically black men, like these men left our neighborhoods and the ones who were left actually met, kept their employment. But the ones who didn't, um, the ones who I'm sorry, the ones who stayed actually kept their employment and they were stable. But there was a whole like neighborhood full of black boys and black children who lost their parents or lost their fathers because their fathers lost their income. Um mm. And then those fathers, because they lost their income, they got involved in other things, you know, whether it was they were selling drugs or using drugs or maybe they was even using drugs while they were they were working. Who knows? But then you just had a bunch of single mothers like legitimately every street I lived on in Detroit. And there were many. I don't think any of us live with our fathers. And I might have been the only one who saw my father. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now the, the great part about my story is, too, is I had these fantastic uncles and a fantastic grandpa who who I love dearly. And, I, you know, I lost him when I was five. And I still think that man is the greatest man to ever walked this planet. Uh, but I had a bunch of uncles who just chipped in, you know, who would pick me up, take me to the park, get me involved in baseball. So I had these other men, even when my father wasn't around, who played the role of my father. Um, until my father was able to to access me and get get back to me, because that's another part of the story as well. So it sounds like you had you had a you had a pretty steady influx of of, of positive men in your life. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, so and we know that at least you know we're made to believe that that's not common right now. I mean, mm-hmm. or, or it hasn't been common for a long time for some of the reasons that you named about the losing incomes or mm-hmm. we can talk about the incarceration or whatnot. But mm-hmm. um, so when you, when you look at the boys that you work with now uh, with your company, uh, and, and I hope I say it right, because it's a lot of big words, which <laughs> with your company, comprehensive <laughs> discipline this, solutions, this, this, Yes, <laughs> when you work with these, with the, with these, uh, with these, with these students now, who may have, who may have similar backgrounds to what uh, you came up with, or uh, so what? What are you seeing as far as um, have things gotten better? Have things gotten worse? Like you know, like what's your take on the way that they're growing up now, and how's it affecting their education experience? I think it's it's not just their ex- education experience that is is impacting. It's their it's their overall social, emotional, and development experience. So I'll give an example. I had a program in a, in a school where I saw, well, it was, I think, 40 or 30 boys um, once a week. This was my program in this particular school. So we, you know, we, we talked about things. I had a whole curriculum. I have a curriculum that I do with them um, called ABLE. And we were talking about, like, who leads your household? Like, what's your role in the household? And my kids who had dads all said that they were not the man of their house. My kids who didn't have dads said that they were the man of the house and they would sometimes undermine the relationships that their mothers had with other men because they wanted to maintain their dominance, even though mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily the man of the house. So it causes this kind of really kind of funky relationship between the, the mother and the son mm-hmm. where there are these kind of crazy boundaries like he's the man of the house, but, he, but he's only 15. Um, So there's that. And then there's also not understanding the role of a man. So when I was a director of student services, I had a classroom, um, a self-contained classroom. And for people who don't understand, uh, don't know, typical self-contained classroom is a classroom, a classroom that kids don't transition from. They actually stay in the entire day. Um, And typically it's related to um, special ed students. Well, I had a room um, in my high school that was 14 kids, three girls, uh, 11 boys. 
um, although the one of the boys was Latino, but 10 of the boys were African-American. So I went in there to observe one day and <clears throat> I'm watching these boys kind of basically bully these female teachers and teachers assistants. So I put a male in there and the boys started complaining. And they're like, well, you know, I'm Miss Murphy. I don't, I don't like him because he thinks he running stuff. So <laughs> I say all that to say, like, there is such a disconnect in the in the households where there aren't men, um, where these young men don't want to see. I won't say all. Some of these young men don't want to see or engage or respect the young man. I've even heard that even on the streets where young young men say, well, they ain't got they ain't trying to listen to old head. Like, I know what I'm doing. Even in the game, I, you know, you watch stuff on social media sometimes and some of the old gangbangers are like, you know, these young boys don't want to hear it. Um, and so I, that is a huge part of, of some of what I see in schools. Those families that are stable are stable. Those families that aren't aren't. And you really see the differences in, in kind of their structures and their um, and in a lot of cases, the boys behaviors. No, I totally believe that. And there's been. A few discussions I've had with some fellows our age, with some brothers our age, and the one thing that I hear um, pretty often is that this current group of young men are probably "quote unquote" the most dangerous generation because they, there's like the respect for the elders is just yeah. gone, and, and you know they'll they'll hit a teacher as fast as they'll hit somebody else in their in their class. Mm-hmm. So now, um, like, also, you remember when Michael Jordan played for whatever reason, decided he was going to play basketball again, and he played for the Wizards? Yes. Yeah. If, the difference in the way that the locker room of of that generation treated him, mm-hmm. as opposed to the way that uh, with his locker room when he was in his prime, was significant. Mm-hmm. There was absolutely no respect mm-hmm. for this living legend that mm-hmm. was going to play with them and was trying to elevate them into a championship team there was mm-hmm. a, there was so much pushback i never saw somebody just trash talk somebody on their own team the way that they disrespected mike yeah i mean it, it's real I, I, so i will say this in in the young man that i had um i will say this they can respect but it's different. And I literally had this conversation with my daughter the other day about respect and acceptance. And I was I was raised by and groomed by my family to respect people. I didn't know I didn't have to accept what you did, but I had to respect who you were. And this generation of young people, not just the, the young ones, but even the one, the Gen Xers, the Gen, whatever they are, maybe I don't know. We're Gen X. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know what letter we're on now. I don't and, know what letter it is. Yeah, and yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, they believe that you have to earn their respect. Now I will say these boys, they did something in the school that I found out about and I leaned into them hard. And they got to denying it. Oh, I, 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 it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was him. He did it. You know, so there was there was some 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 feeling. But but that, that was after six, six or eight weeks of me coming to him every week and me spending time with him and me trying to treat mm-hmm. him with respect and listen and converse and help them along. Um, they're not the way that we were. Like you have to demonstrate that you have to demonstrate that you're worthy of their respect. And in many some cases, they'll give it to you. But it's you got to work for it. It's no longer given. 
Yeah, no doubt. There's a coach that I met in Georgia who's doing phenomenal work mm-hmm. with uh, with young boys down and uh, down in the Atlanta area. They just called him Coach, and mm-hmm. he had a he had he had a talk at an event that I was at, and I remember he said something that was pretty impactful, and I was like, "Huh, okay." He said, "You know the old saying." Nobody, nobody cares what you know until they, they know you care. Mm-hmm. He said um, he spends weeks just mm-hmm. sowing seeds to create trust. Mm-hmm. And he said the one thing is that uh, with them, the trust is fragile. Once you break it, you, you're not Bro. getting it back. Yeah. Um, he said that when he tells them that he's there for them, whenever they need him, he means it. If they mm-hmm. call him at 2 a.m., he answers his phone at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. If they say that their family doesn't have dinner, mm-hmm. he's getting them dinner that night. Yep. You yep. know, and mm-hmm. and that's how he's got such a high success rate with his boys is that they know that they can depend on him, and he mm-hmm. shows up every time. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that the the other parts of this conversation, because we talk about how reckless the young men are, and they absolutely are. But I think the other part that we have to understand is, is that, you know, they didn't they didn't just they ain't weeds. They didn't sprout up in a, in a field. We created right. this. We right. created this because of our lack of responsibility and our lack of this and our lack of that. I'll never forget. I was uh, when I was still working in Baltimore as a state employee, I could catch MTA for free. So. One day I was like, oh, I'm going to catch the bus and see how it is because I work downtown and I lived, you know, in East Baltimore. So I was like, OK, I'm just going to catch the bus. And I remember um, just watching the kids faces as I rode the bus to work. And this is probably six in the morning, six fifteen, whatever, because I was an early riser, got to work. And I watched black adults get on the bus drunk, high, loud, obnoxious. And these are you know, there's also students on there ready to go to school. And on the way home, I'm watching the adults let people on the back of the bus and the kids are looking at them. So I say all that to say all this to say is like we've got to do a better job of presenting what adulthood looks like and what responsibility looks like to our kids because they're responding in this way because in many cases we haven't provided them with that guidance. I mean, we talk in front of them about people, we talk to them, we talk to them about shit that excuse me, stuff they shouldn't even know, quite frankly. Like my mother occasionally talked about my father. But she 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 did blasting. But um, <laughs> we we have to be a little bit more. We have to be more sensitive. Like in my opinion, we we have perverted black childhood, and black childhood black children deserve safety, and they they deserve just peace, and we don't give them that in many cases as black adults. Yeah, I honestly that that that's one thing that I regret um, with uh, with my prior marriages. You know, we we didn't always show uh, our son our best mm-hmm. selves, you know, mm-hmm. and when you learn through therapy, <laughs> like how much your childhood affected your adulthood, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, man, you know, you know, there's some stuff that he's going to have to talk to a therapist about when he's when he's in his in his 20s, 30s, you know, mm-hmm. just because of those uh, uh, of those 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 kinds of uh things that he would overhear you know and uh so mm-hmm. i think we got to do a better job of enabling like you said enabling black childhood uh, mm-hmm. we have to do a better job of presenting our best selves mm-hmm. and becoming more responsible with our mentorship of mm-hmm. not just our kids but other kids also 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like I always say, uh, it's up to black men. Like black men have to have to raise other black kids because mm-hmm. a lot of kids, you know, don't have um, men around mm-hmm. them. So it's up to us to to be those men and raise some more black kids that aren't even ours. So mm-hmm. now let's talk specifics. So with your company, um, in the scope of your work, um, what are what what are some solutions that we have? Uh, to help uh, to help these kids out, you know, like how can we help them? Say if they don't have uh, the the men in the home, like how mm-hmm. can how how can we as outside mentors better help them? Um, you know, not become these statistics that we read about. So there's a, there's a few things that need to happen. One, the the mentor has to be consistent. Um, and, and when I say consistent, just like the coach you talked about earlier, they've got to be that guy that if they say something, they're going to back it up and they're going to do it. Because what what consistency does is it brings about a, a level of predictability. And what predictability does is it provides a level of safety. And what safety does is provides a level of trust. So consistency, I know you're there. I know I can count on you. I know you got my back. And here's the beauty about consistency is that if you make a mistake, you got so much credibility in the bank. They know that the mistake is not based on any any mistreatment or malgivings or misgivings or dislike or disdain. It is, wow, okay, he just made a mistake. Um, so I think the first thing is consistency. I think the second thing is raising expectations. In my opinion, too often we have such low expectations of of our boys, mm. um, and and in some cases our girls, um, where we yeah. don't we don't hold them to the standard by which they should be held to. Like people will people will admit, people will get to the standard or to the expectation that you have for them. So if you have low expectations, they'll get to those low expectations. If you have higher expectations, obviously they will. The other thing is with those higher expectations, you must also demonstrate those things. And because I've heard it from kids my entire career, and I even watch it sometimes in my family um, and talking to cousins and whatever. And they're like, you know, yeah, my dad claims he told me not to do so. And so but then he did it. He did it himself. So right. we've got to be better models. Um, and then I think the last piece is, is that we've got to actually really deal. We, the the adults, have to deal with the trauma that we've experienced because trauma is nothing but we don't do anything but just keep rehashing the same trauma in our communities over and over again. And then I infect you and then you infect your kid. And then he infects this girl down the street. It's almost like it's a communicable disease. Um, so we've got to, those adults have to have a conversation about their trauma, um, whether it's with a, with a therapist, a friend, um, even if in the community you create some type of safe place where folks can just talk about some of their concerns. Um, to me, that's a tier four intervention, which is the family. Too many programs, in my opinion, work with only the kid and the kid eventually goes home and he's got to deal with it would deal with an adult who doesn't have the same values perspectives understanding growth etc and so what ends up happening is this kid and his parent clash or this kid is still subject subjected to the power of their parent so they fall in line so whatever whatever um skills or tools you might give them are immediately eliminated because they still have to deal with this person who's still hurting you know what? And it's you said that to me a while ago, and I and I hadn't thought about that. But there's a term that I had heard before. It was inheriting the scar. Mm-hmm. So we tend to pass down these scars. You know, typically, if you see um, a dysfunctional person, they probably had a dysfunctional 
parent or parents mm-hmm. and those dysfunctional parents probably had dysfunctional parents mm-hmm. and so it it, it it just keeps getting passed down through the mm-hmm. through generations and at some point somebody has to intervene and say you know what i'm i'm done with this and they have to stop it um and i think it's i think it would do everyone a lot of benefit everyone to at least have a conversation with a therapist yeah and the you thing know? the thing that we have to understand specifically as black folk because not i don't I, I can't say that everybody's like we have a unique history with america in that we were the we were the only group that didn't choose to come here <laughs> like, <laughs> like we, we we were made to come here um we didn't choose to be here and then when you add in all of the historical stuff that's not to say that other people haven't experienced historical stuff because they absolutely have but it is to say the level of just straight up evil that we have faced at the hands of white people. Um, and I call it like I see it um, is, is, is ridiculous. It is, it is a lot of what is the trauma that we have right now, because if you think about it, I mean, I'm 53, you're 48. The reality is, is that our parents were still living that stuff. Yeah. Our parents were still like in it when they were our age and even when they were teenagers, they were living that, that stuff hard. You know, my mother told me stories about some of her friends who, who messed around with white girls when they were in their 20s and what the cops would do and what, you know, white men would do. So I, I give us I cut us a little bit of slack because we're not too far removed from the extreme oppression that we we faced. Um, now, the other parts of this conversation is sometimes when we talk about it, um, people will say you're, you're practicing respectability politics or whatever. I don't agree with that. I believe that black people deserve the best. That's not that nobody else says us, but I'm speaking us to us. We deserve to treat each other kindly, better, loving, um, supportive, and however we can help each other, in my opinion, we should be instead of some of the conflict that we see. Um, so, so quick, quickly, before yes. you move on. Explain, explain what that means, uh, respectability politics. So respectability politics is, is is essentially like you're saying that you believe in, um, oftentimes, it, for lack of a better term, people will say they're white politics, white values, um, such as, you know, uh, uh, following the rules and things like that. And that has nothing to do with, with, with whiteness. That's got something to do with just people. And we have to we have to have a, an expectation for ourselves and we have to treat ourselves better. Even if white people treat us like whatever, if we treat each other better, then we can kind of offset some of what white folks do. And then white folks don't even really become the, the larger issue because you love yourself. But if we treat ourselves as bad or worse than white people, I mean, that that's not going to help us at all. And that is sometimes at least in my opinion what i see when people talk about respectability politics is well you know white people act this way you shouldn't act that way and i don't know that there's that certain values are white they are human um regardless of who the person is you know you want your son to be successful you want your children to be successful that's that's not a white value that's a human value um we want to be able to take care of our families that's a human value that's not necessarily a white value which sometimes people will ascribe well I think another observation to that is also that when people don't feel like they have power, they want to exert control. So, uh, so when I was when I was little, I was a bullied kid, and mm-hmm. I always and I hated this one kid. His name was Lamont Thomas. Shout out to Lamont Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. You know, don't hurt me, bro. I'm just going to tell a story real quick. 
You know, so <laughs> he used to, he used to, he used to bully me in something fierce, bro. Like every day I knew what was going to happen. You know, if I ran into him, you know, I was going to get punched. I was going to get pushed into the bush. Like he was relentless, man. But one day I was coming out, I was coming out of my house and we lived, I think like right next door to each other. And he was getting, um, and I heard there was some commotion going on inside and, and, and I heard him getting smacked around. I don't know if it was his dad. I don't know if it was his mom's boyfriend. I have no idea who mm-hmm. it was, but I remember he was just sitting outside on the porch, just in tears. Yeah. And I just remember I felt this sudden just swell of empathy for him. Like I just mm-hmm. felt so bad for him. That he was sitting outside looking like that and he just looked just defeated and mm-hmm. I just and I've told Renee this story and I remember when I when I told my therapist the story he said that explains a lot about you and I remember I just sat beside him on the porch we didn't say anything I just mm-hmm. sat with him I just you know we just sat there and just had a quiet moment together and after that there was no more bullying mm-hmm. like he was done we were done with that part of our mm-hmm. relationship and that's when I learned that it's true when they say hurt people hurt people. Oh, absolutely. You know? absolutely. Yeah. When you feel like you've got no power in your life, you're going to exert it on someone else. And I feel like mm-hmm. that could be reflected in, in our community mm-hmm. when you've gone for generations and you don't, and you're abused and you don't feel like you've got any control over your destiny. We mm-hmm. can turn that and amplify it on each other. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I think that that is definitely a piece, but this, at the same time, we also have some, some control in that situation because while I agree that, that, that there is the damage um, and there is the evil that we've experienced um, at some point, we have to also then stop the experience and make a change a thought or whatever um, to make our lives and our situations and circumstances better. So that would be the only thing I would add to that. I totally agree with the point, though, like hurt people hurt people. That's just reality. Um, I talk about an experience in my book where there was a young man who we fought. Uh, we probably fought, I think, three or four times. Um, it all started over me ripping his shirt. And um, you instigate you know, we're playing street football and, you know, you play <laughs> street football. You go to grab somebody, you rip the shirt. Um, so I told my mother, um, told my mother that I ripped his shirt up and she was like, oh, okay, well here, give him $10 so he can, you know, replace his shirt or whatever. And so I gave him $10 to replace his shirt. So then he starts running his mouth in the neighborhood about, you know, my mom's his hoe and, you know, Oh no, stuff. wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it didn't end well for him. Let's no. just put that way. So he was kind of, he was kind of the bully of the neighborhood too. Eventually um, we fought several times, like I say, probably three or four times. Um, and he, he didn't fare well. Um, and then, uh, he actually ended up getting killed. Wow. Yeah. Ended up getting killed at 14 years old. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even, I can't even imagine losing my 14 year old son. Like that's, 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 that's unimaginable. Yeah. I mean, in Detroit, I mean, like I said, the stories I tell about, about the city, like, you know, we, I remember I was 14 that time, at that time too. I think he got killed the same summer that we had this incident, we were playing street football against a team down the road and um, we beat them and, you know, we were walking back home and, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the old ice, the, the old lynch mob video uh, um, logo that ice cube used to have where they had the sickles and the bats and yeah, yeah, yeah. guns and stuff. And I just remember we were walking through an alley and we saw the, sh- the shadow of 
the boys we had just beat and they had bats and bricks. And, and so we turned around and started running and the guys who got caught ended up getting pistol whipped and, uh, and beat up and beat with bats and all kinds of stuff. The only person they let go was the, was a nine year old who was on his bike, but the rest of them who rest of us who were like 14, 15, I was able to run away because I was one of the fastest me and my buddy, Tony, Tony left me. Um, we was like, I was, he's probably maybe 10 steps, maybe five, three steps ahead of me. And he hit a corner and he hit, warp drive and i came out the alley. i was like tone tone and he weighed me down he was probably a block or two away and then i ran down to him and we ran home but the rest of those guys that got caught like i said got pistol whipped and beat with bats and bed slats and all kinds of stuff so wow just yeah for no reason but because we won a football game wow yeah. yeah yeah so so let's go back to um education for a sec let's go back to uh-huh. education because you know, this is this, this is a really big deal for us right now so what role do you feel like having representation as far as like who they're getting taught by has in their performance i know you and i have discussed this somewhat in the past but what role do you feel like representation has as far as um the education um of these kids so there's research research that talks about there's research that talks about having a black teacher um improves the outcomes of all kids it's not just black kids. It's all kids. Um, so there is research that's there. I was fortunate. I mean, I grew up in Detroit public schools for the first, I think, seven years of my life, eight years, whatever it was. So I don't know what it's like not to have black teachers. Hmm. I know a lot of people that I know have never had them, but I, I my life started off <laughs> with them. So um, <laughs> I don't know what it's like to not have them. But again, there is research that supports it. Now, the challenge becomes 80 percent of the teachers in this country are white women or are white. So. And this is the other side to that that conversation or equation. Either we got to produce more black teachers or we got to work with what we got. Hmm. And nobody wants to be honest about it. Like the the colleges and universities that used to produce all these graduates around education. Like when I worked in Delaware, University of Delaware used to produce like two or three thousand graduates per year in education. The year that I left, they had, I think, 400. Wow. So you're talking about people not going into education. And the other thing that people don't seem to understand either is like I've worked at the district level and I worked at the state level. There are a couple of things that there, there are several things at work. So the first thing is, is everybody's competing for black teachers. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> so so, I mean, just being real, a place like Montgomery County calls you and they're going to pay you. 75 grand, you know that the test scores are okay, you know the attendance is okay, you know all these things are good. Or Baltimore City calls you, and I'm not trying to demean Baltimore City, and they offer you 50 grand, and you know that maybe the skills of the schools aren't, or the, the performance of the students isn't as high as it, it is in Montgomery County. Where are you going to go? Yeah. I mean, that's just part of the reality, and nobody really wants to talk about that, but that that is a part of the reality. Also, when I was at the state in relationship to the Black teachers, is we have Black teachers, but many of them, there needs to be some type of system put in to support them passing the the, um, the praxis, which is the teacher's exam that gives you your certification. Um, <clears throat> there's a few other things that are at play, too. Um, where the experiences of the kids, like you talk to black kids in schools and high schools and they're like, you ask, you want to teach? And they're like, hey, I don't want to deal with these badass kids. This is literally what the kids say. <laughs> so, 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 you know, you've got all of these things at play and, you know, we focus on the one, but 
you know, and I, I believe that we, you know, we obviously need black teachers, but, you know, we also have to work with what we got. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it, I think um, the same can be said because I always wondered why there aren't more, there aren't more um, black judges in, in the, the Western Maryland area. Uh, they're just, they're, they're just, there aren't a lot of, of black judges. And I didn't know, but a friend of mine who's actually a sitting judge um, told me that you have to live where you preside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, with the higher concentration of, of these uh, uh, black attorneys and black judges living in the more, mm-hmm. in the Urban. bigger cities, yeah. they're not coming out here to Western Maryland yeah. because they don't want to live here. Yeah. <laughs> they rather yeah. they live in the city. They don't want to live here. So, yeah. so, so why do you, and it, and it, and it's wild because um, when you go into the court system, when you go into the, the justice system mm-hmm. and you don't see anyone that looks like you, it's really hard to think that you're going to get a fair shot. You know what I mean? It's really, it's really difficult to think that you're going to get a fair shot. So I can imagine if you're walking into a school and you don't see anyone in authority that looks like you, mm-hmm. um, you know, nobody who's working at the secretary desk looking like you, anybody in the administration looking mm-hmm. like you, it can be, you know, that can be a little intimidating, you know? So, and, and, and you mentioned that, um, according to the, to the research that, um, performance increases across the board when you have more black teachers, like, why do you think that is? Well, it isn't, it, it, the, the kids have a, have, have a, a better, a better social, emotional, and in some cases, academic experience. I mean, it could be in a number of things. Um, it could be that that uh, teachers, the black teachers, are, are are less uptight. It could be that you know that that kids they connect with kids better. Um, it could be a it could be a number of things. I, I will say that there are some cultural nuances and cultural difference that sometimes I see in classrooms with teachers that are African American that I that and teachers white teachers. Um, that's not to say that all white teachers are, you know, whatever, but it is sure. to say that I've seen in some cases where sometimes there there's been an, a stick being a stickler for the rules and, you know, all these things, whereas it's kind of like, OK, in some other places, hey, you're here. Let's make it work like let's make it work. Um, whereas others well, you don't have a pencil. Well, you know, you got to get out. Um, and again, that's not all that's not all white teachers, but I have seen that in the the less uh diverse places <laughs> <laughs> that was good yeah, yeah 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 that was good how you phrased that that was that, yeah. was, that was very masterful <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean even even in a place like you know i was telling literally telling my cousin uh about my daughter like when i my daughter had an experience she's in baltimore city public schools like a teacher said to her or said to us, like we looked at a report card and my daughter was 50, I think 52 or 54 things. And she had um, 50 O's and like two S's. O's are outstanding and S is satisfactory. And so I was like, well, you know, well, you know, clearly she's doing excellent because she got 50 outstandings. And uh, the teacher proceeded to say some stuff and I had to get my daughter yanked out of her class because she said some things that were quite offensive um mm. yeah it was yeah yeah but i also have an education background so you you i know the questions to ask and i was able to push push back on her which she wasn't really comfortable with so there was that as well. <laughs> yeah hate being questioned 
<laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, she said my daughter talked too much. And I'm like, okay, so when does she talk? Does she talk 10 minutes into the class, 20 minutes of the class, or 40 minutes of the class? Classes are only 50 minutes. Yeah. And she's like, well, she talks typically about 15 minutes. And I was like, well, based on her report card, which has 50-something outstandings, clearly the work isn't challenging for her because she wouldn't mm. be done in 15 minutes and be talking if it, if, okay. if it wasn't. And so then she got upset and then she, you know, said my daughter lied. And so then I had to lean into her. Yeah, it was, it was oh, not wow. Good. Yeah, yeah. It was. You uh, used that term a few times and lean into it. You used that. <laughs> yeah, lean, lean into it means I have to, I have to, I have to uh, assert, assert my, my dominance. Right. <laughs> you know, and you guys can't see it, but, uh, but, uh, Mr. Murphy's not a he's not a small man. He's nah, not he's nah. not what do you like? What are you, you like? Six five? No, I'm 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 six well, it might be six five with shoes on. I'm six three and a quarter without shoes, and I'm about well, two two seventy. So yeah. Well, I'm I, five nine, I, so you look six five to me from my vantage point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, I'm I'm a big guy. So it, it it looks a little different when I when I raise up. Um, yeah, it looks a whole lot different. <laughs> I bet it does. I yeah. bet it does. Yeah, yeah. The um. So 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 speaking of that, so moving from education into actual discipline, man. So overall, mm-hmm. discipline in in schools, uh, too tough, too easy, just right, or you know, in your, in your view, like what needs changed across the board as far as like school discipline. For uh, specifically uh, for for African American kids, so actually, I don't you don't know this, but I actually authored the statewide code of discipline, which is actually the code of discipline for all Maryland public schools in the state. Oh wow, I authored, Maryland, I authored right? that that and that policy way back like six or nine nine almost ten years ago, huh. um, and it's, it's still in the in in place. So there's a few things that I think it really it really comes down to leadership, man. Um, when you I did not want to remove my kids. I told them that I was very clear on that. And when I had to, I provided some some options for parents. So I might I can think of one particular kid who who got into a fight and he was supposed to be gone for like 10 days. I think I know five days or something. And I called the mother and said, look, he's supposed to get five. I'm going to give him two. But for the rest of the week, he needs what he comes back. He needs to work in the cafeteria for the entire week. And because I knew mom couldn't couldn't afford to take the time off. So I think that there's I, I can't say that there is too much, too little, um, because I don't I don't want to get into second guessing some people because I've seen situations where there's no way on God's green earth. I would have tolerated the behavior, some of the behaviors that I see. But then I also see situations where I don't think that the kid needed to have the consequence as as the consequence, the way that it was delivered. Um, but mm-hmm. all of the consequences, all of the stuff goes back to relationships. And I had a good enough rapport with the kids in my building, whether it was my classroom or as an administrator that I didn't really I didn't. I mean, when I first got to my school, I think we we suspended like 100 kids or something like that. And and when I took over the discipline, it, it went down to maybe 30 or 40 kids. I don't even think it was 40. Um, and it was all because we, we I had relationships and I could look at somebody and or pull them to the side and be like, yo, so look, shorty, come in my office and let's have a conversation. And once I got them situated and taken care of, and I'm not talking about pacifying, I'm like, because a lot of teachers complain that 
kids will get into trouble. They'll go into the principal's office and they'll come back with a, a ho-ho or a Slim Jim or a Tasty Cake or something. I wasn't doing that. I was basically <laughs> telling them to get their, get their stuff together. Um, and I used to tell my kids too, and that is something that I don't think principals do. I used to tell them when they're in my building, they're my child, just like my child is my child. And just like I'm going to support you and love you, I'm also going to discipline when you need. And I think that is part of the challenges that there are issues around discipline. Um, I know there's a lot of talk around discipline, but the numbers don't really support some of the talk. Quite frankly, when you look at the data, about 70 percent of black kids are suspended come from three districts, Baltimore City, Prince George's County and Baltimore County. Seventy three percent of all the suspensions in the state for black kids come from those three counties. Wow. Prince George's County has got black administrators. I think I, I did this this report. Uh, uh, presentation on them. I think 87% of their principals are black, their secondary principals, meaning the 6 to 12. 87% are black. 82% of the assistant principals are black and 77% of the teachers are black. So when you look at who's making the decision as to who's getting suspended, it ain't, the teachers don't make that decision. Deans and typically assistant principals make that decision. And in Prince George's County's case, 80% of the principals who are making those decisions are black. Mm. So we, we and I remember doing this at, at MSDE too when I was there, like there's a lot of talk about this it being a racially motivated issue. And in some cases it is. I'm not suggesting that in smaller counties you don't see more black kids suspended because in just about every county, with the exception of Garrett, um, there were more black suspensions than white suspensions. Um, but in particular places where the vast majority of black kids exist, it's real, it's largely black principals making that decision. So then it becomes, is it a racial issue or is it a behavior issue? Is it a culture issue? It's yeah. a lot deeper. It's a lot deeper than people are making it. And the next point too, and this is a point that nobody ever talks about either, is that suspension, depending on how you define how it works, what what's works, for me, if, if it extinguishes the behavior, then it worked. Um, in 86% of the cases, cases in this state, kids are suspended once or twice, and that's it. We've got about 14% of our population that's suspended three or more times. And so then the question becomes, is that they can't control themselves? Like, what is that? Because that's not just a teacher being mean to you or a principal being mean to you. That, that looks like that's something else. And they're they they are probably they are the ones who are also driving those numbers. And that is oftentimes that's a well, that's never talked about. Yeah, I feel like you can't you can't take suspension um lightly because if you suspend a kid who doesn't have a good home support, mm-hmm. you know, you're suspending him into a toxic environment when probably the most positive environment of his day is gonna be in school. But here's the challenge. And this is the part that, you know, people don't really think about or discuss is the other kids. I give an example at a school I was consulting at. um, I'm doing my observations. I'm in a classroom and I'm, I'm watching and two boys who never participated. Like I've been going to the school for six months, three months, four months, five months, whatever it is. Never seen these boys participate. Three kids are gone. These boys start participating. They're answering questions. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're engaged fully. As soon as these three kids come walking through the door and these kids had had a problem, they fought in class, et cetera, so forth. 
these kids go back to disengage. And one is like, I need to leave the classroom because I'm feeling anxious. So that's the other side of the conversation. I hear you on that. And I wish that there was some way you could mitigate that. But the other yeah. question is, is that you got these other kids in the classroom who deserve to learn too. And so do you sacrifice the one for the all or sacrifice the all for the one? And that's yeah. the dilemma that parents, that's the dilemma that both teachers and administrators face that nobody seems to talk about. And I don't envy anybody who's got to make those decisions, man. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, um, Teaching and administrating in public schools, um, I think it's just like you said, it's just like parenting. And, and you've got to find that balance um, of tough and tender. And you've got to consider uh, the holistic holistic experience of everyone in that class and in that school, man. It's it's tough, man. I can see I can see the dilemma. <laughs> yeah, the, the other thing is, too, man, and, and this is, I think, where I, People who don't know the business of education commenting on it, suspension was never designed to be a fix it. What it was designed to do was it's a partnership between parents and the school. And if the kid is acting up, then you send them to the person who can actually correct the behavior. The parent corrects the behavior. The kid comes back to school. We move forward. People have now tried to make it into being an intervention or it's it, it doesn't work. And. Like I just told you, I can, I can actually show you the data from the state. 86% of the time, it actually does work for the for the kids who are, who probably have the structures in place. The kids who don't have the structures in place, obviously the 14% or 15%, it's, it's not working for. And that requires something else. Yep, I agree, man. We could talk about this all night, man, because this is, this is really interesting to me. And um, I hope it's interesting to people who are listening to it and – um, I guess one thing that I would ask you just to kind of like begin to wrap things up here is uh, is that what do you hope people get or what do you hope they learn or what do you hope of the glean by the time they're done reading your book? Um, I hope that they glean that, you know, it, growing up as, a, as an African-American male in America is complex. Um it's it's not all there. Are, you are facing a variety of challenges and a variety of situations and circumstances. But even within those situations and circumstances, they're also like uh, there's sunlight. Um, so I'm hoping people understand that that this thing called growing up in America is, is just it's complex. And I, I write the story for a black as a as a black male. But, you know, some white people who've read the book have been like, well, damn, like, you know, I went through some of these things, too. I didn't have the racial kind of thing hanging over me, but my family was was dysfunctional and my mother had issues and my daddy had issues and all those things. So what I really want people to do is really I hope that people take from the book like, you know, through it all, we, we, we continue to thrive. And, you know, we continue to make it and we can make it. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is, um, like I said, I, like I said earlier, I want to tell a story of the just an average black kid because I don't think that story is told enough. Well, that's good stuff, man. And uh, where can we find the book? Uh, how can we get the book? You can get the book on Amazon. It is uh, just look up my name or look up niggas ain't astronauts. You cannot type the word. <laughs> you have to type. Let me actually put put a copy of the book up. <laughs> okay. And that is the picture of me at six when Mama fried, died, and laid my hair. Fried, died, and laid to the side. Hot comb to my hair. Yes. That's why, <laughs> that's why I'm now. bald now. Yeah, that's why I'm bald now. <laughs> me is the S curl. Oh, 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 
Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't get it. No, don't be sorry. It was beautiful, bro. <laughs> My escrow was beautiful. <laughs> nah, I'm good. I had waves. I don't need no escrow. I'm good. I'm Man, good. My escrow was beautiful. And I had the big daddy cane part. <laughs> so most important question of the interview is going to be this. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. You know, you and I share a common interest. Yes. Now I want to know who's the greatest professional wrestler of all time. Let me think. <laughs> the 16 time, his stealing, wheeling, dealing, limousine robbing, styling, profiling, Nature Boy Ric Flair. Son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time. Holding these alligators down. Okay. <laughs> That's right. The greatest of all time, baby. That that dude was special back in the day. He still is. Are you yes. ever on, on are you ever on his Instagram? I am not on his because I don't really do Instagram, but yeah, yeah. I, I I can only imagine that dude was why he was why. He's still the nature boy, man. Listen, I've had the I've had the pleasure of uh, meeting him a few times and I got some stories about that. We'll tell you offline. <laughs> Can't talk about that on the air. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying. That dude, wow, man. What I <laughs> but well, brother, good dude, good dude from what I hear. Brother, too. you're a good dude too, and I appreciate you talking to me today. Uh, for more information about uh, Robert A. Murphy and his book, uh, Negas and Astronauts, please go to Amazon and check out uh, the book. And uh, also, mm-hmm. does your company have a website? What it your, does. What is it? It's, WW well, CDS, CDS the number three the letter C dot com. I CDS love it. Three C dot com. So if you're a school system or if you're an organization uh that wants to have policy written or you want to have uh some definite used database improvements in what you're doing with these Absolutely. kids, listen, you gotta talk to this guy. And as always, act like your mama gave some manners. Give this podcast a five star rating <laughs> immediately. Everywhere, we're we're everywhere. I don't want any excuses. We're everywhere. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on we're everywhere you want to be, and we want your five star review and rating. Share it. Share the love. Send this to your local school system. <laughs> Help them change some things, right? Amen. So, but until next time, Robert, I want to thank you. I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening today. And as always, go and live your life to the fullest. Love your people with all your heart and always, always hustle hard. See ya. Thank you for joining us today on Life, Love, and Hustle. We appreciate you and your support more than you know. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone who could benefit from it. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook to continue the conversation and get exclusive access to even more content. We're grateful for your loyalty and we can't wait to see you hustle your way to success. We'll be here for you every step of the way. 